Hi there, you're listening to the podcast version of 3CR's Monday Breakfast Show. Catch us live every Monday at 7am at 855 on your AM dial, streaming 3CR on the TuneIn app or at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy the show. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. late 30am. Good morning everyone, you're listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio, whether it's 855am or at 3cr.org.au slash streaming. We are very happy to have you here today. My name is Will and I'm here in the studio with James. Good morning, James. Good morning everyone, thanks for tuning in. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, uh, I hope we had a wonderful weekend everyone. We're looking forward to another week in this slow and steady march towards the grave. Oh, that's a grim tone. To I, didn't, I didn't mean to take us there. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, but um, but we're here and it's a Monday, and that's fine. Well, we were talking. Uh, it's a very misty, foggy morning out there yeah. this morning. Maybe it's your walk this morning that has me thinking about the grave because you walk through a cemetery it's in true. the fog at like probably five thirty in the morning. I need to walk through cemetery to get to my train station, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was particularly foggy and. I kind of liked the eeriness yeah. of it. Yeah. But maybe you need to walk through, like, a field of flowers instead or something a bit more uplifting. Well, there's actually... It's not um, it's not sombre at all. No. It, it is a... There's a lot of beautiful trees through there and, and a lot of um, really amazing birds that hang out through the cemetery, actually. I walked through a football field. Mm. But it takes on a different tone when it's, like, pitch black outside and... Really foggy and weird. So that's kind of an oblique way of letting you folks at home know, basically, that before you leave the house, it's kind of foggy this morning, and then it's going to be mostly sunny today. We're looking at a top of 28, which is pretty fantastic. 28, you know, for for autumn. Um, hmm? It is, yeah. And I think it, um, yeah, it's a kind of, it's a weird weather-wise type of year, isn't it? But we kind of also get to a realisation that a part of the year has... Has already gone, yeah. but you know that's that's okay. We you know make the most of. We're going to be talking a little bit about climate in alternative news. Um, what what's been happening around the world lately? They've been having more hearings at the Royal Commission into Banking and um, Financial Misconduct, and that's um, a lot of revelations. I'm just kind of looking. Well, this isn't officially alternative news, but I just my eye was caught by the front cover of the Financial Fin Review. Um, uh, with there's like this kind of black panel with floating heads, and they're all these sort of middle to late aged white men. Um, and one of them has the quote, "I have been made a scapegoat. I did not act dishonestly at any time, and it was under their instruction and how certain matters were to be done." And oh, I just feel so sad for Andrew Smith, former Westpac financial planner. Hmm. It's interesting. I think that it's one of those things where. We we know how much the banks are um, 
cutting corners on things or, you know, we get charged for things that we shouldn't and all mm. that because it's something that in a very minor way we're affected by and then in a bigger picture way we can clearly see happens. So I feel like, you know, we're going to be in, and we're not surprised by any of the findings that kind of come out of it. Mm. And yeah. I'd say, you know, don't be shocked if there's no consequences as well. Yeah. Um, what can we talk about to take our minds off the banking review? Can we talk about movies Movies very briefly? Sure. I'm trying to look for a movie to go to during mm-hmm. the week with a friend. And so far we've got, um, what is it, the the Avengers movie that's coming up. Okay. Because I need bread and I need circuses and I need them now. And I suppose the Avengers movie will do, but, like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm looking out onto a scrolling little thing of thumbnails, pictures on the internet of movies, and they're all, like, American coming-of-age movies. Well, I mean, you know, I guess if you you are uh, upset about the doom and gloom of the world, yeah. there's nothing better than having some, you know, group of superheroes taking your mind away from it, which yeah. I'm sure the Avengers will do. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm just concerned that I won't get the full effect of the story because I've not seen any of the other ones yet. I don't think that will be a problem. Uh, you don't think I'll be missing out on complicated threads of plot and character have development? So. No? no. Oh, okay. Oh, well. So yeah. I guess I'll, I'll just go enjoy it. Um, shall we jump into alternative news or do we have anything else to, else Let's to talk do it. about? Okay. Um, it is 7.05 on a Monday morning and you are listening to Monday Breakfast. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, And you're right back in the, the studio here on um, Monday Breakfast here at 3CR. Um, just off the top of the thing, uh, I just thought we should acknowledge um, that yesterday was Earth Day. And um, I don't know what you did for Earth Day, but I, I spent all day yesterday out, out in a field enjoying a tree, um, which is what you're supposed to do. I think according to all of the, all of the banners, also turn off your lights and stuff mm. um, and get that. Yeah, I just remember th- thinking back to... Um, when I lived in Canberra, there was a, an event happening at ANU at the National University where, for Earth Day, everyone gathered in a field and con- committed to not using electricity. But because it was nighttime, they had to have these big floodlights on. <laughs> and there was a generator playing music, a um, generator powering a big speaker system, and it was the funniest thing in the world. And that kind of isn't um, a standalone experience um, of Earth Day. There's an article in The New Matilda written by Lee Rhiannon um, entitled Earth Day, why corporates can't save the planet. And I don't know if a lot of this is going to be news to folks listening at home, but it's worth sort of thinking about days like Earth Day and the way that um, corporate organisations and sort of large large institutions and even government can take days like this as uh, useful PR to shape public perception of their um, their role in, in this specific case, um, climate change or global warming and um lee rannan makes a, a you know a good point that on the board of earth day which is ostensibly a day um combating climate change and combating pollution and that sort of thing 
um, on the board of Earth Day is um, Hewlett Packard, who is one of the largest emitters of fluorocarbons in the world, um, like the second biggest or something really astounding. And also that um, that you know at the same time that companies like Hewlett Packard um, put themselves on the board of Earth Day. Um, Mining companies are the most dangerous for for climate protectors and um, nature protectors around the world in terms of the approximately four people every week who get murdered um, trying to protect their lands from from sort of rampant economic ex- economic exploitation. And so that's that's something that um, I found illuminating just for for the details. Like sort of generally, I kind of understand that if there's sort of a large movement in in favour of stemming climate change, but it's led or majorly funded by large corporations, then it's kind of moot in a way. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's something that caught my eye, and um, I think it might be worth folks reading at home if you're interested. It's newmatilda.com, and it's one of the most recent articles because Earth Day was yesterday. I think there's um, quite a lot of kind of problematic kind of issues within the. Um, climate environment sort of movement around where some of the funding comes from and and even um, in Naomi Klein's uh, latest book she talked about some of the pitfalls of um, NGOs and kind of always instead of you know working on uh, eradicating some of the issues around um, climate change and things like that if you're always just working for the next funding model and things like that it can have a similar effect as what we see with politicians working on election cycles. Mm. Now, Lee Rhiannon, um, importantly, uh, identifies neoliberalism and capitalism as um, important to confront when talking about issues of um, environmental justice and environmental degradation. Um, And it's worth noting that the Greens aren't themselves, the Australian Greens, an anti-capitalist party. And... I don't know, there's something in there. Uh, Lee Rhiannon is, um, like, I've, I've seen a lot of good things from Lee Rhiannon in terms of her policy. I'm not really super, uh, I'm still a baby when it comes to um, to party politics. I'm, I still don't completely understand the Greens, for example. But I just think it's, um, I don't know. On, on the one hand, it's heartening to see a variety of voices, even within parties, but on the other hand... It'd be nice to see the voices that I agree with having a bit more power. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a there's been a power struggle within the Greens mm. for people like Lee pushing um, a more left wing kind of Mm-mm. policies and and ideas forward to um, be a part of the Greens platform. Yeah. And you know, I think that's a struggle that is still ongoing. And we we've spoken as, about that a bit on the show over the last couple of months and some of the challenges of. So Lee's supporters and to uh, Richard Di Natale. Yeah, um, just on the same vein of um, of Earth Day and um, uh, humans' interaction with the land and people's interactions with each other. That sounds very vague and nebulous, but I'll bring it back to something specific. Is an article by um, Gadrian Husan. I, I might be mispronouncing the the writer's name, but they're a um, a person who's written for Indigenous X indigenousx.com.au, which is a really great online publication um, and organisation which boosts the voices of Indigenous people um, here on in so-called Australia. And so Gadrian is a Garawa and Yanua man who um, lives in the Northern NT 
and um, that is an area, uh, especially, especially around the um, the towns, um, the Garoa camps up in the north Northern Territory, which have seen um, dangerous levels of lead contamination in their drinking water. Um, and so people living in those two townships, um, Garoa 1 and 2 is what they're called, um, I'm certain they've got other names, but uh, they've been served uh, warnings by the Northern Territory government, um, warning people not to drink the tap water or the groundwater, rather, and um, water's been brought in on trucks. Um, but as I, I can sort of totally understand that that would be horrifying not to be able to drink your drinking water and mm. knowing that um, for the last few last little while um you've been drinking water that has dangerous levels of lead and um that this poses a specific threat to to the elderly children to pregnant people um and so that's that's pretty horrifying when and also it's it's absolutely worth mentioning that these are mining towns so we uh, were speaking about earth day and um large corporations um responsibility and culpability when it comes to a lot of environmental degradation, to the majority of environmental degradation. And um, this is a mining town, and um, the ABC, to their credit, has also covered this story, and they've spoken to um, the folks who are mining in that town who are... Uh, gosh, sorry, I forgot the name of the, the mine itself. Uh, Glencore. Glencore, um, who's going through a... Um, environmental impact assessment and at the moment they say that there's no indication that the mine has anything to do with lead poisoning but um you know i i I just find it hard to believe that it wouldn't be related to mining in in that town when we've seen things like this happen before and well i mean we just saw last week in the northern territories um going to be completely open to fracking as well Mm. and we've seen in australia and america what what that does to the water and and um and all the kind of things coming out of the land. Um, well, if we can, I wanted to move on to talk mm. about um, something to do this week, obviously, is an- excuse me, Anzac Day on Wednesday. And something that has caught my attention, which is an Australian today, is that the Australian War Memorial Director, Dr Brendan Nelson, who I'm sure is familiar to many listeners as the former Liberal Party leader and also the Defence Minister during the Howard government, is talking in the paper today about um, that the, the military personnel who helped stop the boats under the Abbott government's asylum seeker crackdown should be honoured in the National Memorial in Canberra. So he goes, Nelson goes on to talk about how this will be slightly controversial at this time um, but in due course, they should be recognised as a true part of the military endeavours and that this is one of the... Well, most Australians, Nelson says, would see this as the most important work that the Australian Navy is doing at the moment. Well, this is on the back of, you know, there's protests um, camp happening at the moment at the um, Aboriginal Tent Embassy to um, recognise the frontier wars and the Aboriginal people who fought as part of the invasion on Australian soil. And Brendan Nelson has had communication with some of the organisers there, and, you know, they refused to sort of allow the... um, the, those those people to be a part of the, the march or anything. But he wants to include soldiers who are 
stopping in boats. Uh, this is, I find, yeah. Yeah. Pretty, um, I don't know, I don't know how to. Well, you know, he's not wrong words, though so. when he says that, um, people should recognise the, the efforts of the Australian Border Force and the Navy in their, their operations as being part of the Australian tradition of, um, military efforts. Like, I don't know, just the, 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 I feel like I'm not studied enough to make any sort of comment on this, except for it seems to me that the Australian military's main target is to defend Australian whiteness. And mm-hmm. um, just, oh, I don't know, it just oh, makes me really frustrated. Well, Nelson, um, I'll quote from the paper about, here. He yeah. says, when I was Defence Minister a decade ago, I spent two days out on a patrol boat but the courage that is shown by these young sailors on these patrol boats is extraordinary. Whether it is foreign fishing, big threat to the soldiers, Mm. whether it is asylum seekers and so on, and in more than a few cases, it takes a heavy toll on them. You know, and I think that clearly at this time of year, criticising anything that the Australian military does is uh, met with huge condemnation. But Mm. if we are to just reflect on those things of confronting people fishing as opposed to what some of the other soldiers that, you know, World War Two um, Australian soldiers who, uh, you know, engaged in a, in a war, which, you know, a war is when there's two sides fighting with, mm. you know, and, and at least in that instance, they're semi-mutual um, kind of weaponry and things. A huge military and Navy ship uh, up against fishing boats, I don't. Mm-hmm. I struggle to see that as that the soldiers will be really terrified and sure. that they're, you know, in the same kind of category as soldiers who've been at war. And yeah, it's a. I think it's a really um, problematic mm-hmm. way that Nelson is arguing that. But then again, this is yeah. the person that led Australia into the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I think maybe the feelings of the Australian soldier, um, Australian. Navy sailors is neither here nor there, but more that the cause, whether the cause that they're fighting for, the cause that they're putting their bodies on the line for is just. Hmm. Um, and I think the the mental health of people who join the military is something that um, that we we should care about and that we should be um, uh, really fighting to ensure is in a state that's healthy and safe, but at the same time people who are in the, in the military should really look at what they're going out and fighting and what specific tasks they're being asked to do and whether it, it is moral. Mm. Well, I think, you know, one thing that is really clear is that the Australian government, like many governments, um, Western governments around the world, is happy to put a lot of money into war and um, military arms spending mm. and get soldiers off to fight in a war. Um, but once those soldiers stop actually being part of that... that um, the army at that point, they really care very little for them. You know, we see how much uh, the, you know, alcohol and drug issues and mental health issues for soldiers and also homelessness, the um, ex-military personnel that access all that kind of, all those kind of services is, is extraordinary. And I think if the Australian government spent, you know, a lot of the, the millions of dollars that they're spending this week on really essentially promoting war, if they instead gave that to the people who are um, suffering the effects, both the Australian soldiers and the people that the violence is um, put upon, I think that that would be in a much, much better way to spend the money.
Mm. I, I don't know if we have much more to talk about on... Um, Oh, actually, I think it's worth worth mentioning, giving a big plug to um, tomorrow's uh, tomorrow's Tuesday breakfast because yep. um, Tuesday breakfast they always bring us great um, great interviews with uh, with women and gender diverse people um, speaking about issues that are really important in the sphere of uh, well, actually, all, all sorts of things they speak about: environmentalism, social justice issues. I mean, environmentalism is social justice. I don't know why I separated the two, but anyway, the point is: great Tuesday breakfast. Mm-hmm. But Tuesday breakfast tomorrow, especially special, because they're doing a um, a sort of panel on um, recentering the hashtag Me Too movement um, around, oh, sort of away from white American celebrities, essentially. Um, it's, it's a bit more... I'm being a bit trite there, but, you know, they're having great speakers on, like um, Sally Goldner, who is the... who has presented um, Out of the Pan, which is a show about um, sexual and gender minorities um, every Sunday um, for, like, 13 years. Sally Goldner, great. Um, and also is uh, one of the heads at Transgender Victoria, um, which is a really great resource and advocate for transgender, trans people. So um, that's going to be really exciting. Also speaking to Tarnine Onus-Williams. I think I may have mispronounced um, their last name. I'm not sure. But um, but they, you may know them from uh, speaking at uh, the uh, Invasion Day protests um, earlier this year, and they're a fierce advocate for... Um, they're also a member of War, the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, and so they've got a really valuable voice, and you really need to hear what they have to say tomorrow morning. Um, tomorrow morning from 7 a.m., and it's, you know, not just those two who I've mentioned, but a whole raft of really great speakers. And so if you are interested in hearing more about Hashtag Me Too, um, if you don't even know what a hashtag is, it'll be worth <laughs> tuning in tomorrow morning and finding out what's happening. And that's 7 a.m. Um, with the Tuesday Breakfast team, who are... Incredible. So, listen, um, we might just move on to some community announcements. There are some pretty cool things happening around Melbourne, and um, this is a great way to find out what's happening. So, um, by all means, go off and make a cup of tea or coffee, but also stay tuned. You're listening to Monday Breakfast. Billabong Beach starting on the 8th of May at 11am till 12pm, 8.55am, 3CR Community Radio. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June the 2nd. Tickets available through Tikiboo 
www.3cr.com.au Early bird community tickets available for 3CR subscribers and City of Yarra residents and workers until May 7th. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR supporter. It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun. And that was uh, Cordillera by Alex Anwanter, who is a uh, Chilean sort of post-disco musician who I'm currently crushing on. So uh, definitely check him out on on Spotify or on YouTube or... Uh, no, I don't think you can get to see these in Australia, so I'll have to be online, I'm afraid, folks. Sorry. Um, I had a conversation with one of our listeners after the show last week and we were talking about um talking about online and how creepy things can be so um i'm going to try to commit to making sure that we if we have any sort of information for you folks to try um follow up on at home we're going to come up with offline solutions as well so um so try to hold us to that folks um by calling in 94198377 we can't put you live to air but um but if you do call during business hours then messages do get passed on to the monday breakfast team so next up, we're going to be listening to an interview from In Your Face just last um, Friday. Well, Australia's immigration regime can be highly problematic for LGBTIQ refugees and asylum seekers, especially regarding proving their queer credentials and why they can't return to their countries of origin. On the line, we have Alice Gardel from the Refugee Advice and Casework Service in Sydney. Welcome, Alice, to the wonderful airwaves of 3CR. Thanks very much, James. Alice, how difficult does the Australian government make it for people seeking asylum or claiming refugee status because of their sexuality or gender identity? Pretty difficult. It's a really challenging process. Um, so it sort of depends on whether or not the person has come by plane or by boat. Um, so essentially how it works is that if you've come by boat, you'll have an interview with the Department of Home Affairs, um, and that's your only opportunity to tell your story. And then if your visa is refused, um, your appeal process is only on the papers and you can only provide new information in very compelling circumstances. But if you come by plane, you have an interview, just the same. But if your visa is rejected, then you go to an appeal process with the tribunal. So what's really challenging for a lot of our LGBTIQ clients um, is it's their first chance for many to talk about their sexual orientation. A lot of them are from countries where it's unlawful to be gay, it can result in prison sentences, inhumane treatment while in prison, and in some countries, even, for example, Iran, um, homosexuality is punished in some circumstances by the death penalty. So for a lot of clients, this is the only time, and the, the first moment, in fact, that they've talked about their sexual orientation. Many of them have hidden it from their friends, from their family, and certainly from the governments of their country. So it's really, really challenging when they get to Australia 
and are put in a room uh, for three hours with a Department of Home Affairs officer and questioned about, you know, really personal aspects of their lives. Um, so what's really difficult is that often um, the questions that they're asked, even though that there's pretty clear guidelines in place to be respectful and sensitive, the questions that they're asked are really awful. I was talking to some colleagues about um, coming on your show today and asking for some stories that they've had, and it's just really awful to hear, you know, examples of people being asked when did they realize that they weren't normal, referring to sexual orientation as a lifestyle, you know, um, asking people just really stereotype things, you know, asking whether or not they've been to Stonewall, um, if they know certain porn sites, you know, just stuff that's really, really insensitive and so just makes really the process so of, difficult. It's a really kind of Western construct of, 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 of queerness. To what extent is the government setting them up to fail by making the uh, burden of proof too difficult? Yeah, I think you're entirely right. I think it, it, it just makes it really hard and it's something that people, you know, shouldn't have to be proving in that kind of a way, um, especially because exactly all the questions that you're asking are either super, super personal um, and just shouldn't be asked in that kind of context or require you to delve into stereotypes that we shouldn't subscribe to anyway. So you're right, it's a, it's a really challenging claim for people to bring. And another reason why it's so difficult is because, as I mentioned before, if you've come by boat, you only have one opportunity to tell your story. A lot of people, especially if they don't have legal representation, just don't feel ready and comfortable to tell that to a department officer which means that if they don't mention it the first instance, it's really, really difficult to bring it up later. Um, and that puts people in a yeah, really challenging situation. And also implies they have some understanding of the policy process, which clearly when you're coming from another country in a state of, of trauma or great anxiety, that's just not going to be realistic. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And something that we come up against as well is the definition of a refugee is a well-founded fear of persecution. And what the Australian government has found that to mean is a real risk of serious harm. So a lot of the things that people are suffering day-to-day, discrimination, you know, governments that they've come from who don't accept LGBTIQ people and are trying to honestly do awful things like rehabilitate and cure people, sometimes even describing that kind of evidence can be classified as not enough because it doesn't amount to serious harm. So it's actually a really tricky legal debate as well. You can come from a country where we would classify the treatment of LGBTIQ people to be absolutely unacceptable and yet need to be arguing kind of a different definition, more about your harm rather than day-to-day discrimination. Alice, so it's, it's a really challenging of, concept. Can you think of any examples where the Australian government has sent people back to their country of origin even though uh, they're fairly convinced the likelihood of them being killed is, is, is there? I don't know if I can think of an example of someone being sent back, but something that I um, recently dealt with was a client of mine who had had his visa rejected in the first instance, so suggested he would go back. He came by plane so that he had an appeal process in a tribunal, and he went alone. He didn't go with a lawyer, and he's a very young, very vulnerable individual. And his claims weren't about his sexual orientation. He hadn't mentioned it. But... Homosexuality came up whilst he was in his tribunal hearing and the tribunal member asked him one, two questions, nothing direct about it and clearly he didn't understand it, didn't understand the significance of it and failed to provide the tribunal member with that that direct evidence that he was gay and you could... 
the problem was she could clearly appreciate that that's what happened and ignored it and didn't allow him to bring forward that claim. Now, fortunately, this client of mine ended up with an Australian partner who found out about this and came to RACS and got legal advice. And through our advice, we haven't, we were fortunate enough to get a second hearing. But in that hearing, again, the tribunal member kept cutting my client off, was really angry that the client hadn't mentioned in the first instance that he was gay, and even said, for example, and I just think that this is really unacceptable, asked him why he hadn't provided that information in the first instance, to which he, to his absolute credit, responded, because I wasn't brave enough to. At which point, she then picked up the written submissions that I had written, which included the kind of evidence that we do need to provide day in, day out, which is really challenging. So, for example, every single dating app that this client had on his phone. And she read out every single one of those apps, some of them which were pretty explicit, read out every single one of those apps and turned to him and said, now you were brave enough to speak to people on those apps, but you weren't brave enough to tell me. Why not? To what extent do you think that's a homophobic response from her? That's a deeply homophobic response from her. And it's the kind of thing that I think happens again and again, even though there are clear guidelines saying you just can't do something like that. And the real issue is that clients like that, you know, they're very vulnerable. English is not their first language. And so they don't realize that it's possible to turn around and say, that doesn't make any sense. Those two things aren't at all related. And that's a really homophobic thing for you to do. So without legal representation, they're just not aware of the options available to them and the fact that this shouldn't be happening. I understand there are about 20 queer asylum seekers on Manus. What's the Australian government's response to the fact that their safety is at risk in PNG because of widespread homophobia and the legal situation there regarding homosexuality? Yeah, I think that's a a really problematic area. And the Australian government um, has just the stance on Manus, both for you know, queer refugees and otherwise, is just clearly an inadequate level of protection, safety, medical care, anything. So I think, you know, it's it's uncontroversial that the situation on Manus for everyone there is totally unacceptable. Alice, how would you rate Immigration Minister Peter Dutton's performance regarding the plight of LGBTIQ asylum seekers? Does he have any sympathy at all? Look... I know it's a loaded question. It is a very loaded question. I think my answer is that our day-to-day experience, not necessarily of Minister Dutton, but of the case officers working under him, is that it's clear that they're aware and there are guidelines in place that tell them what they should be doing and being sensitive and being considerate of people's wishes and of who they are and that those are being disregarded. And I think it's not... It's not complicated and it's, it's, you know, it's absolutely not complicated to understand that you should just be accepting of people for who they are and not grilling them and quizzing them on claims which are incredibly personal and really hard for them to express. Alice, did your clients react to news of Peter Dutton basically approving two uh, people who'd been rejected at immigration, the two OPARs? Uh, was there a reaction from your client base when that happened uh, along the lines of, well, he's granting it for those people, why not me? Was there anger? Yeah, uh, I think the challenge is that our client base is just really not tapped into what's happening in a policy and a legal sense, um, which is fair enough because a lot of them, English isn't their first language. Um, And I think 
what upsets them more is when they see people they think, you know, are not in the same position as them or in the same position but might be saying untruthful things. And they look at that and they say, you know, nothing's happened for me. I don't understand. Why am I still waiting? Why haven't I heard? So I think it's it's an unfortunate reality of the situation that so many of our clients just aren't aware of how the policies work and the kind of, you know, inequitable policies that do exist. You must see a lot of deterioration of mental health as clients negotiate this labyrinth of policy, especially when they're so far away from home and the cultural language and uh, bureaucratic hurdles in there in place. Yeah, you really do. And I think it's just that uncertainty. And, you know, people do get to a point, I've, I've seen clients where, you know, they're so afraid of going home and they think that they'll, they're definitely, definitely going to suffer serious harm if they go home and yet they're just at a point where they're like, you know, my life here, nothing is happening, maybe I should go back. And I think watching someone get to that level is, is really hard. Alice, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Keep up the awesome work at the Refugee Advice and Casework Service in Sydney. It's wonderful. Thank you so much, James. It was nice to talk to you. Cheers. And that was James from In Your Face last Friday speaking to Alice Gardel from the Refugee Advice and Casework Service in Sydney about the uh, status of LGBTQIA plus uh, asylum seekers and uh, the kind of investigations that they have to go through. Um, next up, we're speaking to uh, a representative of Valid. We're speaking to Christine Scott um, from Valid uh, on the Mel- Moreland Disability Expo. I should have Christine on the phone. Are you there, Christine? Yes, I am, thanks. Good morning. Uh, so thank you for coming on Monday Breakfast. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so we're, here, we're talking together about the Moreland Disability Expo, but first of all, f- some of our folks at home may already know what Valid is, but can you give us a bit of an un- idea of what Valid does as an organisation? Uh, Valid's uh, not a service provider, so we don't provide mm. accommodation or respite or day programs or anything. We are an advocacy service, um, so we provide advocacy. In other words, we help people sort out problems um, over a short term uh, to help if they've been refused support or they're having a problem with their service provider, uh, we provide advocacy. Um, And we're funded to provide advocacy to adults who have an intellectual disability. Um, But we also provide um, training and information to people with disabilities and families and that doesn't matter what disability the person has. Um, so our families program, we have families of um, people with all types of disabilities. So it doesn't matter what disability they're. That's right. So um, Valid, like you said, is an advocacy organisation and it's together uh-huh. with um, the Moreland City Council that you're presenting the Moreland Disability Expo, mm. uh, which uh, is going to be full of stallholders um, who, can, who are able to offer, who are themselves offering services and advice relating to things like the NDIS and other things like that. Can you give us an idea of what we can expect from the Disability Expo? Well, we run these expos because uh, we feel people are getting all this choice as part of the NDIS, but they actually don't know what's out there to choose from. So um, the expos are aimed at uh, trying to help people in a sense, go and shop around 
because it, uh, you can go and talk to a whole range of different organisations that provide different types of services. It might be equipment, it might be uh, attendant care, it might be that um, it's a, a residential support or um, you want to get change services and have different workers take your person out into the community. Um, so the expo has uh, at Moreland will have about 75 different um, organisations uh, who provide all types of different supports from early intervention for children right through to adult services of every type that you can think of and also the specific things that the NDIS funds. Uh, so the plan managers, which is an, a new thing that the NDIS funds, support coordinators and um, the NDIA itself will also be there to answer people's questions. That's fantastic. And aside from the... Um, uh the, the stall holders, of which there'll be many, we're expecting to hear from people like uh, Urala. Um, some other people might not have been con- confirmed yet, but Vision Australia will be there as well. So that, that's a, just to give people at home listening an idea of the, um, the vendors that'll be there um, on, on the date, and we'll, we'll get to the date and all of the specifics in a moment. Um, there's also going to be the information um, sessions in the concert hall. Um, there are also going to be uh, different languages available f- for information. So uh, what, what kind of like, um, interpreting services um, will be available on the day? Well, um, because we know that there's a lot of people in the northern suburbs from different cultural backgrounds and don't have English as a first language, uh, there'll be Arabic, uh, Italian, Greek, and I've forgotten the last one. Cause I, I don't think it's have Turkish as well. Uh, Turkish, yes. yes. Um, and that will be a session on um, the basics of the NDIS, but also people can extend that by asking their own questions while the interpreter is there as well. And we do have a range of other sessions. Uh, the Association for Children with Disabilities is going to talk about um, the best way for families with children to prepare. And Amaze is going to talk about uh, children with autism and Valid's also going to we'll run a couple of other sessions on understanding some of the more complex parts of the NDIS such as how the funding works and um, how, uh, what's the difference between leaving your money with the NDIS or self-managing so we'll be talking about those different subjects but in user-friendly language it's not in the jargon that's fantastic. That'll be really valuable to some of the folks listening at home um, who might also be interested to know that uh, the uh, the venue uh, is uh, wheelchair accessible. Um, there's going to be hearing loop service and um, Auslan interpretation. Now, of course, this is radio, but if you have a family who are interested in turning up to the expo, um, it's good to let them know that those services will be available. Uh, what date will the um, Moreland Disability Expo be? It's on Friday, May the 11th, starting at 10am, going through to 4. Um, and the other thing that's available is an attendant carer as well, oh, yes. in case someone comes independently and needs some assistance. So um, 
But yes, Friday the 11th of May, 10 to 4. Um, can I also give a plug? <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> that we've got one f- uh, happening in Wyndham. So in Wyndham City Council is also sponsoring an expo. And that expo will be Thursday, June the 7th. And it's the same sort of thing. We'll have all stallholders, uh, stall um, information sessions on different topics um, from 10 to 3 on June the 7th at Wyndham City Council. Absolutely. And um, earlier in the show, I did promise that we would give um, contact details for this event um, and also non-internet-based as well because some folks may not have access to the internet at home. So a phone number that you can call if you want to find out more about um, the uh, the Moreland Disability Expo? Yes, it's um, 03 9416 Fantastic. And if you do have access to the internet at home, head to the Valid website, which is valid, V-A-L-I-D, dot org dot au and just that number phone number one more time if you're still fumbling with a pen the phone number is zero three nine four one six four zero zero three i've been speaking to christine scott who is a representative of valid which is an advocacy organization for people with uh intellectual disabilities um as they try to deal with services and find uh employment and other things like that um christine thank you so much for joining us on monday breakfast not a problem thank you You're listening to Monday Breakfast, and uh, we're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back with you. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today we revisit Mark O'Brien from Tenants Victoria to discuss all things Bond related. It may be that you've found somewhere to live and you're about to sign a lease by yourself or with others on a new property and you can't afford the bond. Don't despair, for several decades Victoria has had a fund that can underwrite your bond. Mark O'Brien from Tenants Victoria explains. The Department of Human Services runs what's called the bond loan scheme. And you can, particularly if you're on a statutory income, go and get one of these bond loans. It can be a bit tricky to transfer them between tenancies. So that's always been a a sort of sticky bit of the process. But they do work effectively for a lot of people. And it's good to know that that scheme exists. Roughly speaking, if you're on a statutory income or equivalent, and the rent's not going to be more than 55% of your income, I think it is, then you'll be eligible for one of these bond loans and you should go down to the Department of Human Services and see if you can get one. The number of loans has increased, but it's not as widely used as you would expect it to be. You do have to get it at the local office, but there's 17 DHS local areas. There'll be a DHS office probably not far from you, in Melbourne at least. In the country it might be a bit trickier, but there'll be one somewhere. 
So you just need to identify the right place to go. And all the eligibility criteria is also on the site. So you can just have a look through the eligibility criteria and go, yeah, okay, I meet all these, I'll put my application in. For all the information on bond loans, go to housing.vic.gov.au. You may be surprised how generous the amounts offered are, and for a single applicant, you can apply if you earn under $555 per week gross. If you qualify, the department will write a cheque directly to the Residential Tenancies Bond Authority. At the end of the tenancy, the money is repaid to the department, and you can apply for a fresh loan for your new digs. If some part of your bond is withheld due to damage, for example, you only need to repay that amount to the department. Another thing that protects all parties at the start of a lease is the condition report. Mark suggests how you should approach this. So if you're a tenant, the basic thing to do there is fill out your condition report at the beginning of the tenancy very carefully. So that protects you at the end of the tenancy. I'd love to have a dollar for every tenant I've ever spoken to who said, I know that mark was there, I know that broken tile was there at the beginning of the tenancy, but it's not on the condition report. So that basic bit about when you go in, fill out that condition report really thoroughly. That's also an issue because a lot of tenants feel like they just have to accept what the agent has done, and you don't. The way that process works is the agent gives you their version of the condition report, report and it's perfectly reasonable for you to give them back your version of the condition report. If they don't match, sort that out at the end, but at least you've got a record of what it's like for you. Let's jump ahead to the end of the tenancy. You've just moved out and returned with the landlord or agent for the bond inspection, condition reports, in your hand. If the landlord wants to recover any money from the bond to cover rent arrears or damage, they are obliged by law to have it adjudicated by the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, or VCAT, and you are also entitled to appear to argue your case. Mark next explained the process. The basic law is this. The landlord has within 10 business days to refund your bond or make a claim against it. If at any point in that 10 business days there's a dispute between the landlord and the tenant, either party can apply to VCAT to have the bond refunded to them. Uh, So what that means if you're a tenant is that if at any time you realise that there's a dispute with the landlord, so you're not agreeing about something the landlord's trying to claim from you, you can just apply to VCAT straight away. don't even have to wait for the 10 business days. VCAT probably won't list it until the 10 business days is over, but you can put the application in and not get jerked around by the landlord, certainly not feel like you have to concede to anything. The main issues that we sort of see in that regard really fit into three categories. So if you've left rent arrears, well, the landlord's pretty much got an automatic claim to that. It's not to say there can't be dispute about the rent arrears, but essentially the landlord's got an automatic entitlement to claim any arrears from the bond. So the second area then is obviously damage. So the landlord's alleging that something in the property has been damaged during the course of the tenancy. So the damage stuff, the principle around that is the landlord can only claim for things that are not fair wear and tear. So it actually has to be um, really a breach of your the tenant's duty to take reasonable steps to ensure that the property isn't damaged. So that's the threshold for the landlord being able to make a claim. So often with damage claims, the, the first thing you look at is, well, is this really just fair wear and tear? 
So you can't expect, for example, that the floorboards in a property, if they're bare floorboards, are going to look exactly the same after a three-year tenancy as they did at the beginning. It's not a realistic expectation from the landlord or agent, and it's typically fair wear and tear. Damage is another area where if you disagree with the landlord and you think it's fair wear or tear, go and sort it out at VCAT. There's nothing to be lost from that. Particularly for you, it's your money. Uh, so don't give it away. Um, go and contest it. And uh, the third area is the cleaning area. The tenant has a duty to leave the property reasonably clean when they vacate. But the key word there is reasonably clean. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be pristine and it doesn't mean it has to be sparkling or anything like that. It just means reasonably clean. Now, for better or worse, reasonably means essentially what would a reasonable person think is clean. It's the same principle in the garden. Neat and tidy in the garden. That's about it. In all of those areas, what can often happen with the tenant is the landlord's making a lot of allegations and the tenant feels a bit browbeaten into agreeing to give up something. Avoid that sense at all costs. If you think that you haven't done anything wrong, then contest it at VCAT. And if the landlord doesn't want to apply within the 10 business days, then you apply within the 10 business days. Next week, Mark O'Brien goes into more detail on what happens at VCAT regarding bonds gives some tips on how to approach it and sorts out related legal issues. We thank Mr O'Brien for his time and insights. Canons Victoria can be found at tuv.org.au. our Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Rock for Rots is a musical fundraiser event organised by the local Melbourne Koori Music family for the godfather of Koori Music, Peter Rodimer, who has recently been diagnosed with cancer. Peter is a well-known and respected personality and an icon in Koori music, having performed on local and international stages with the Black Arm Band, Hard Times, Stray Blacks, Three Gubbers and Me, and much more. As a solo artist, Peter has performed in many festivals and countless community events supporting his beloved Aboriginal community. Rock for Rots will feature legends of Koori music with all the money raised going directly to the man himself, featuring the Stray Blacks, Kutcher Edwards, Dave Arden, Carol Carpenter, Bart Willoughby, Mary Ann Sam, Jaden Lillist, 
Amos Roach, plus many more surprise guests. On at the Toad Hotel, Collingwood, Friday 27th of April, tickets only $25. Come along and support Peter Rodemar for this fundraising event. A 3CR support. I can remember... Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio, you got it right You've won a giraffe uh, We're at 855am, we're on digital radio And streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by by Neil Mitchell. The Sydney Road Brunswick Short Film Competition is on again this April. Come and see the entries, all competing for $5,000 in prize money in Sydney Road Open Category and music videos, along with highlights from previous years. Screening at Sydney Road Venues, Biff Tannen's Bar on the 24th and Barclay Square Laneway on the 19th, with the final and winners announced at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute on Friday, April 27th at 7pm. Free entry and just a $5 donation for the final night. For more info, head to sydneyroad.com.au. The Sydney Road Brunswick Short Film Competition is a 3CR supporter. And it, that was me cutting short Black Fella, White Fella by Warumpy Band. It's a fantastic song, but you've probably already listened to it, so um, look it up in your own time if you want to hear the whole thing. <laughs> Earlier in the show, we were listening to Vent Ani the, by The Zen Circus and Brian Rich, um, which is a pretty pretty nifty song as well. Um, right now, we're welp- welcoming to the studio Vanessa, who is our monthly arts correspondent, and you've got a pretty exciting interviewee to um, to t- speak to today, don't you? Yeah, I'm actually really excited. We're going to have a chat today with Australian literary institution Arnold Zabel, who's written a number of short story collections and novels, including the popular favourite Cafe Scheherazade. Um, he was the recipient of a 2017 Arts Council Fellowship for Literature and lends his support to causes including the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and Penn Australia. Warm welcome to Arnold. G'day. Hello. Um, so I just wanted to have a chat about your oeuvre generally. I don't know if I'm allowed to say a word like oeuvre on this show, but I'll try. <laughs> um, so to like start... So to start with the books, there's a trope I noticed in Cafe Scheherazade and in Violin Lessons too, about second generation migrants coming to terms with the experiences of their elders and their culture. So could you share some thoughts with us at 8 o'clock in the morning, I hope it's not too early, about how we shape the present based on the way we come to understand the past? Well, look, I, I, you know, it's very interesting that quite a few of my stories are described as 
uh, stories about the immigrant experience, but I'd say they're, they're about the human experience. It's, it's a major variant of the human experience, and it goes beyond the immigrant experience because you know, a lot of us in different ways have to adjust to something new in our life. It's just that the immigrant adjusts, or the refugee or the asylum seeker adjusts to something very dramatically new. Well, I mean, I think that's very insightful and very moving. Um, and talking about migration and identity and the human experience, um, it makes me think, you know, for someone for whom empathy is an essential part of your job, how do you grapple with the fact that there's a whole subcategory of, you know, normal people having human experience migrating to Australia and being put into punitive detention for drawing on their legal rights to seek asylum? Well, it's very cruel. It's quite brutal, actually. And I think it goes, uh, you know, I, one, you can say many things. I guess, you know, things talking about, say, uh, uh, the what's happening from uh, the experience of, of of the writer, uh, it's a failure of imagination. Uh, right. And uh, a failure to imagine what it is to be in the shoes of someone else. Uh, Absolutely. That, that's being persecution and, and, and trying desperately to find freedom uh, and instead find another, a new form of imprisonment. Well, I mean, I just wonder how holding space for... An experience like that, you know, a real failure of the imagination informs the process of someone who has to work with their imagination every day. Can you tell us a bit about the relationship between your art and your activism? Well, in a way, it's quite simple. Say, if you look, if you look at uh, Manus Island, uh, first comes the... I, I always say uh, life comes first and life is second. So <laughs> it's tuning into what's going on there. So you make the effort to be in touch with people that are on the island mm. and hear from them firsthand what it is that they are going through. But I guess that's, 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 so that's almost the literal layer of it. But then there are other layers. Uh, at a deeper layer, you know, I call upon the fact that my own parents were refugees and were immigrants and, and suffered greatly. They lost their parents. Their parents were murdered to... Um, in the Second World War, so, mm. you know, and my mother uh, suffered greatly from it. In a way, she was, even though she finally found refuge in Australia, she was in a kind of prison. Uh, mm. uh, well, just... A, a lasting prison, nevertheless. So, you know, you draw on all kinds of things, but ultimately you, you try to put yourself in the, in the shoes of others and, and walk in those shoes. Yeah, and I mean, just talking about, you know, questions of empathy, talking about islands, talking about intergenerational ways of making meaning, you know, in your book Sea of Many Returns, it's uh, all these themes are tied up again with the theme of migration. And I mean, I remember a long time ago, I took a masterclass with you where you were talking about the Greek word for the sea, which is thalassa, and the musicality of that word. Given the notions of sea and migration are important signifiers of identity in your fiction, how do you make sense of notions of national identity? You know, who is an Arnold Zabel Australian character? Oh, that's, a, that's a big one. <laughs> well, I mean, I, it was, 
one way to answer it is if you read my my work, <laughs> uh, you, you you'd probably you know, figure out something about who I am or where my focus lies. Uh, but in terms of who I am, look, uh, if that, that that question just come at me, my immediate answer is I'm human, and and then the rest is kind of you know you, all these categories you can break me down into. I mean, on, on last Thursday night, April the nineteenth, and uh, that night I gave uh, I, I took part in a. A memorial service. It was the 75th anniversary of the outbreak of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Mm. And, and I was invited to be one of the speakers. And I spoke about Marek Edelman, who was one of the commanders of that uprising and who I was very fortunate to meet uh, when he was 87 years old in Warsaw in 2006. And the reason I bring him up is is because he was one of my mentors. I grew up with people like him. I grew up people with people who came from a Jewish socialist background that ended up many of them having to fight for their lives in the Second World War. And they fought in many ways. They fought, literally fought, you know, with a gut in their hand. It you know, came down to the, the most desperate of times. But they also fought in, in other ways by giving love to their children in the dark of time, or by or setting up uh, underground theatres and and, uh, and setting up, you know, kitchen, soup kitchens and all kinds of things. So what I'm trying to say is I was brought up by people who showed me what activism is, all the way from the smallest act of kindness to, you know, a more radical form of, of struggle. Mm. So in a way... Uh, who am I? I? I think we are what is passed on to us and the living examples that uh, come our way. And, uh, in a way, I think I was fortunate that those were the examples. Or maybe I was trapped by that. And mm. I, you know, we, you can look at it different ways, but inevitably I think that led me to, to activism on the one hand, but on the other hand it led me to... Uh, to, to creativity, to a creative expression of that activism. Well, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I know I could listen to stories about that practice for the rest of my morning. Um, but I just feel like I have to change speeds. Um, I've been reliably informed that you're working right now on a new book, but your publisher couldn't tell me much about it. Can we persuade you to say anything here? Well, look, you know, it's a, um, it, what well, you contact with my publisher, they couldn't. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, um, I, I uh, look at the book of stories and they're set in uh, uh, different countries, China. I spent a year in China in the 1980s and uh, it was an extraordinary year of my life. And, and even back then, people were coming to me telling stories about the cultural revolution and the devastating uh, impact that it had on their lives. It, it was a horrific uh, event uh, in Chinese history, often misunderstood uh, even by the left that, that had a, some folks had a romantic identification to what was actually a horrible time when people turned on each other. Mm. Um, and and then our second story, in Cambodia, where I've been going for in recent years, um, 
And uh, another story is about a woman who set up a, a theatre in Bergen-Belsen. Mm. And I guess the, all the stories united are united by the theme of um, of how people, how how history impacts on ordinary people, and extraordinary things that ordinary people do to survive the impact of history. So in a way, it's a continuation of, a, of an exploration of mine that's been going on for many years. And uh, and at the same time, I'm, I'm exploring uh, new forms of literature. The fellowship gives me a chance to explore new forms. Um, so I'm also writing a series of short stories uh, and exploring a new novel. So... Uh, uh, there's a certain, but I, I, it's interesting. I mean, after, after, you know, publishing, I think it's now nine or ten books, mm. uh, I think, you st- I think I start to see what my obsessions really are. <laughs> and I think most writers have got certain things that they keep coming back to and expressing in different ways. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Arnold. It's been an absolute pleasure and a bit of an honour. Um, uh, there is no new book out that I can plug, but Arnold Zabel uh, is involved with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and Penn Australia. His most famous novel is Cafe Scheherazade. It's one of my favourites. Thank you, Arnold. Thank you very much, Vanessa. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And as we mentioned earlier, this week is uh, Anzac Day, or Anzac Week, I guess it's becoming. Um, Anzac Day, obviously, is falling on Wednesday. And something that's been happening for the last few years is a protest um, at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy about the Frontier Wars uh, being included uh, in the official Anzac Day ceremonies and having some recognition of, of those um, wars as part of the um, events that happen, uh, particularly in Canberra, but also around Australia. And we're lucky enough to be joined um, right now by Graham Dunstan, who's one of the organisers of the um, actions up there, and has been involved for a number of years in getting this um, out into the mainstream agenda, I guess. And Graham, thanks a lot for joining us. Good on you, James. Good to hear your voice again. Yes, good to hear you too, Graham. So I guess um, if you could. If you wanted to just start um, by letting the listeners know a little bit about um, what's happening and how the camp's been kind of set up over the last week and the weekend, and um, just tell us, yeah, I guess about what, why, why everyone's gathered uh, in Canberra and kind of some of the activities that are coming up. Happy to do so, James, but let me correct you. Um, the word protest uh, suggests something a bit agitated, um, and it's not like that. It's kind of a solemn... Um, parade up uh, Anzac uh, Parade <laughs> to the Australian War Memorial where we're stopped by a, a police line 
but then mostly it's standing in silent witness with the flags and the banners and the smoke from the fire um, while the official Anzac Day parade ceremony takes place and usually the Prime Minister of the day will speak at that uh, and then they lay wreaths on the memorial. But the dramatic part is that the, the Australian War Memorial set up for this parade to march through what they call the parade ground, the forecourt of the, um, the memorial. And it, all the dignitaries, all the important people are up on daises looking down Anzac Parade towards the Parliament House, or, and more particularly looking at this protest with all its banners, right? It's an open space. And what separates us from them as they talk about the wonderful way Anzac Day makes us an inclusive nation is a police line <laughs> saying, but you guys are not part of it. Incredibly, incredible theatre. Powerful witness happens each year. Now, <clears throat> it's been going on now for seven years. It was initiated by Gil and Michael Anderson, who has a website, um, Sovereign Union, uh, he's a blogger, he's an organiser, he's one of the last men standing founders, he is the last man standing founder of the uh, Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra. Um, and he initiated as part of uh, a, a group of us who were working together to reimagine Anzac Day in the lead up to the centenary. So in 2011 it began and... Uh, Gillow initiated that and we started another event on Anzac Eve called the Anzac Eve Peace Vigil, which kind of seeds the Frontier Wars Mars. But it's a beautiful Latin event um, where we explore ways of remembering the war dead, not just of the Australian war dead, not just the First World War dead, all the dead of all the wars of all people of all times. We're going for pure lament um, to head off, create a different path from what the uh, Anzac liturgy at the dawn service uh, is about. And that's a solemn remembrance. It touches many people deeply. They got 28,000 people to turn up for that Australian War Memorial in 2000 and um, for the centenary in 2015. Huge event. Um, and uh, it tends, it can't help while it's controlled by the military, to be a glorification of war, a glorification of sacrifice to the nation, blood sacrifice to the nation. Um, I just wonder, Graham, we might just go over a couple yeah. of things there, just for um, listeners that perhaps some of these things are, are new concepts for them and, and, you know, some learning for them as well. That, I guess, you know, for people who don't know, obviously the Aboriginal 10 embassy was um, set up, I believe, in 1972, and has been an ongoing kind of protest for Aboriginal rights for um, set outside of um, across from the old um, Parliament House, and is a a remarkable kind of um, part of Australian um, you know protest culture that is is known really around the world, and that's where a lot of the gatherings over the next little while are going to be um, happening at. And I wonder if you could just outline to people um, a bit about what the Frontier Wars are for those people that um, are a bit confused about that. Uh, let me go back to the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Yes, it was established in 1972 and it serves as a kind of a base in Canberra. It's much loved by Canberra people, much defended. Mm. Uh, 
people are proud of its shambolic nature, as it were, right? Because it's a genuine thing. Great place for signage. Great place for you know signage that makes a statement like sovereignty, and also a great place for gathering uh, and reconciliation. Uh, school groups come through there and are addressed by the residents there. It's a hard life being a resident uh, caretaker at the uh, tent embassy through Canberra winter, you can imagine. Mm. Um, anyway, this, that's what's happening. So it's right now, it works best. Well, let, we talked about Gil and Michael Anderson. It began, Gil and Michael Anderson was on the embassy when he drew up the placards for the first Frontier Wars march. Yeah? And we've created now this... Um, the embassy has created this Frontier Wars storytelling camp in the lead-up to Anzac so people can come there and um, learn about um, Frontier Wars stories. So we have regular sessions and things, invite guest speakers in, and uh, also organise and pr- promote participation in the Frontier Wars um, march to the Australian War Memorial on Anzac Day. Yep. So what can I say? Bruce Pascoe was there. Um, and you, many of your listeners would have read Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, Agricultural Accident, or heard him on radio um, doing interviews about it. He's a wonderful storyteller, and uh, he speaks... He doesn't like speaking about the frontier wars. Rise, you know, too much grief comes up for him. Uh, rather think about more pleasant things. But he tells powerful stories. And Monica, can I share one of the stories? Is that appropriate here? Yeah, sure. This he told us at the, the embassy. He said, "You know, why, why, how is it that Australia is not proud that it is the host for the um, oldest living civilization on Earth, continuous civilization on Earth? Um, that that at the time of the invasion, it had the most sophisticated." low-cost, low-maintenance agricultural system. You know, the, the biggest estate on earth is what Bill Gamage said. It had been human intervention, had created this food resource where everyone was fed, everyone was housed, and there was very little work to maintain this. I mean, yeah, they built walls and dams and collected the... But it was all there, established over hundreds of thousands of years, including the making of bread. He says, why isn't Australia proud to be the country where bread comes from? What a gift to the earth for humans was bread. And the evidence for this is that 60,000 years carbon dating of grinding stones have been established. That means it's older than the Egyptian civilization. And he talks about the first first contact, being astonished at finding this bread on a table of a hut that they'd entered, just left on the table, the daily bread on the table and they took it and tasted it and the shocking thing that Bruce says then is that people just don't leave bread on their table that bread was there because the owners of that house who dwelt in it were dead yeah Mm. they killed them and taken their bread that's what had happened at first contact that's what it was like yeah shocking eh? Yeah, it is, um, you know, pretty confronting kind of story, and the imagery that um, comes from that is is very powerful, Graham. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Um, I wanted to go, we spoke earlier on our show 
about an announcement that Brendan Nelson made about honouring the soldiers who were turning back the boats in the shores. Um, but you had a bit of a correspondence with uh, Dr Nelson earlier this week, or last week. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about, um, you know, I guess that that's kind of really trying to intersect, like you said, what is um, this uh, movement to get the... Um, uh, frontier was recognised within the official um, ceremonies and Nelson is the person that I guess has a say on that at the moment. you want to share some of your interactions with him? Oh, well I'm a great admirer of um, Brendan Nelson. I think he's got a huge job, incredible job to hold the grief of the nation for its war dead. You know, what a responsibility that is. And I have had many meetings with him. I mean, you know, I admire his dignity and his, his civility. And he, uh, you know, I consider him a friend. He rings me up sometimes, asks his advice about matters of protest and things like that. Anyway, we've had a, I've had a, this relationship was established when I emailed him when he was first appointed. I guessed his email from looking at other Australian War Memorial emails. I guessed that he'd get the email, and he did, and he responded at once. I asked for a meeting about this peace vigil we were organising, and he, he uh, welcomed me to his office and um, welcomed the idea of the um, War Memorial also being a place where people respected the dead and honoured peace, expressed their yearning for peace. So that's what's been going on. Anyway... What happened this year, and, you know, I've got to say, you know, we had this uh, Anzac um, Eve peace vigil where we assembled on top of Mount Ainsley, the mountain behind the Warm Memorial, in beautiful Latin event and parade down Latin parade down the track, the bush track, to the back of the Strait of Warm Memorial as, as kind of a metaphorical historical journey into grief, um, journey into sadness, and coming out at the bottom of the mountain and going into the forecourt of the memorial, all set up for dawn service the next morning. You know, chairs, we've um, got projection lighting and things like this on it. Um, the, the magnificence of the memorial is there all around us as we lament with song and poetry and bear witness for peace, the grief that's going to follow um, the next day, the dawn service through that. So that's the kind of relationship we have working together. Anyway, on the embassy this year is a Walpuri elder, um, Uncle Ned Hargraves, um, who came down and he offered to... And he came via contest and made the same offer there which was to create a reconciliation dance. Um, and he would teach them um, and paint the men up, men's dance, um, and they would do this ritual dance. Um, it involves a lot of standing at feet. You know what I'm talking about. But magnificent, you know, headdresses. <laughs> and uh, painters bodied and speck with, stuck on with feathers, making lines of feathers and things like that ancient ceremony was offering him. And it just took off a contest. Um, 
beautiful moment uh, by the, the campfire in the middle of Contest and became a big... I mean, go and look at the videos <laughs> of Contest listeners. Um, anyway, he came on to the 10th Embassy and offered to do the same. But um, the initial idea was, a, uh, and it will happen, there will be a dance at the um, police line outside the Australian woman when that happens. So I put out a media release about it, calling for men who are up to the challenge uh, of being painted up and taught a dance of reconciliation. Um, and sent a copy to the Australian woman so we could see what we were planning. Got this response back saying, wonderful, but I don't want you to disturb the, um, the Anzac Day parade ceremony that will be happening at the Australian War Memorial. Why don't you do it at the um, uh, Black Diggers Memorial, which is in the bush behind the Australian War Memorial? And each year after the dawn service, they encourage people to go up and remember the, the, uh, the, the, the diggers, the black diggers, at this war memorial that was created as a citizen initiative a few years ago. It's very small, very beautiful in its own way, but not a ceremonial site. Not made for numbers. And, uh, so I took, took this back to the embassy. <laughs> said, what do you think about this, doing this dance? Um, and Uncle Marbuck, who's down from Burke, who was also at Contest, replied at one saying, sounds like the missions, you know, out the back and out of sight. I want my people up front. Hmm. So that's where it stands. It's not really a confrontation because it's not much what's being proposed. We've had individual people dressed up before up there but no particular performance. Sorry to cut you off there, Graham, but unfortunately we've run out of time. I know that some of the other um, shows are going to be covering some more of this stuff as well during the week. I'm um, sorry, I've gone off in a rave. No, no, no. It was great to hear from you. And if people want to um, find out more about the action or get involved if they're in Canberra, you should check out the Frontier Wars March Anzac 2018 on Facebook and you can find out more. And um, I'm sure Graham will be posting some photos and info about what's happening from there. We will, we will. Thank you for listening. Thanks a lot. You are listening to Monday Breakfast. Next up is Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.